0: Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attended. Here in our at and studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. The years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate uh, outside of Harvard College. And the 2015 period. Christian fiction exclusively Christian type fiction is not where you want to be right now okay this is clinch a podcast of fiction and not fiction today is going to be one of four planned excursies uh, deviations from the normal schedule of a little writing Publishing Inside Baseball, followed by a chapter of the Clinch podcast. And what's got me going off the beaten path today is the three-year anniversary of the release of my debut novel, Playing Saint, which came out on October 14, 2014, uh, from HarperCollins Christian Fiction under the Thomas Nelson imprint. And I very much remember that day. I remember that book release day, my first real book release day. Now, I'd put out some indie books um, on my own and also with my friend Ted Cluck. We'd actually had a kind of fun series of launch parties um, at bookstores, in our homes. We'd had some coverage in the newspaper. We'd had some exciting things, but it was a whole different animal as I anticipated the book release day of Playing Saint, my first traditionally published novel. Now, for some people, book release day actually is something of a big deal. Uh, I've got some friends like uh, Colin Kobold, Danny Petrie, uh, that, that are. Established enough where they have an awful lot of anticipation from a sizable readership, and and there's buzz as the book is about to come out. It builds up toward the release day, and then on release day there's there's probably a rather large giveaway. There's the street team is working on a concerted effort toward building even more interest and excitement about the book and maybe they'll do something fun like drop in to a local bookstore and sign a few copies of their book and and maybe even bump into a few people who are there at the bookstore to buy that very book. But for mid-listers and newbies, uh, release day essentially is nothing. And I had built up in my mind like I think every first time author does that release day would be some, a thing it would it would be an event of some kind I didn't know exactly what but it would be a huge deal It actually split time like BC and ad but but on a much smaller level, like before the book comes out and after the book comes out, that everything would change. And and I didn't have any sense that uh, I'd be rich or or famous or in living in a mansion and, and floating around in a yacht, quitting my day job. And none of those things are anything I've ever even wanted. They all sound exhausting and, and boring to me, but some nebulous, undefined shift was going to happen, starting kind of a new chapter uh, in my life with the release of the book. And having talked to a number of new authors and authors who can remember being new authors, I can pretty much confirm that that's universal. Everybody looks forward to that release day with a sense of this is going to be huge. What actually happens, though, is that you take the day off work, just to, you know, promote the book or enjoy the day or whatever. And you go to six different bookstores just to see your book on the shelf. And you see your book on the shelf at zero different bookstores even though it's the release day, even though it's the biggest publisher there is who's put your book out and you know for a fact that there have been many orders and that the orders have been fulfilled. You see, what you don't realize until you bump up against the stark reality of the business is that if you're not Stephen King or, or Ted Decker or somebody, release dates or street dates are actually just guidelines. Now, the store can't put it out before the street date or the release date, but they certainly don't have to put it out on that day, and certainly not early in the day. It's not like there's a bunch of people you know, holding your books, stacks of them in the back room, just looking at their watches, waiting for the moment they can spring out and put your books on the shelf and say, ding, 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 there, we've released these books on release day. And, and I should have known that because I used to work at a, a bookstore, and I remember how it operated. I remember that there was a receiving clerk in the back room. And she would check everything in in the computer. And then once the day came that it was allowed to be put up, then she'd put it on a cart. We would wheel that little cart out, and we would stock the shelves. But the thing is, well, the receiving clerks, and I have uh, worked with many, many of them around the country, because I worked for a corporate office at Family Christian Stores, they seem to be very hardworking people, industrious people, they probably get the things done on exactly the day all the time. But the people doing the stocking, they're often college students, just getting a few hours in. They're retired people trying to fill time. They're stay-at-home moms who just you know want a little time away from the kid for, for a few hours a week, so they work flex time, and then they also get... This really cool discount on the books and CDs that they want. And what all those people have in common is that they hate stocking shelves. It's the worst. The the lazy people don't want to do it because it's busy work and it's hard work at the end of the day. And the people persons people don't want to do it because they would rather interact with customers. And so they simply don't. And that's one reason why it often is a few days after the release date when your book even shows up. And then, of course, it's not the, the many copies faced out on the shelf like we often have in mind, thinking about you know copies of the latest titles from the biggest names. We, we hadn't done that conversion in our minds. Wait a minute, there might just be one or two copies. And the fact is, if those one or two don't sell fairly quickly, they're going to be sent back in what's called the returns cycle. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And yet, despite all that, I still, when I look back at October 14, 2014, have pleasant memories because I see it not as this one moment in time, but it, it gets crowded together, rolled together, lumped together with a whole bunch of really great experiences of a uh, launch event, radio shows that I was on that I, that I had a ton of fun with to promote the book, book signings and travel that I got to do. and it, it was really a wonderful, exciting time in my life, and it's feeding the anticipation that I'm feeling about the release of the sequel. Aside, just for fun, I threw in a little thread in the sequel of Parker's book finally coming out. Of course, Parker's been waiting to see his book in print uh, and on the shelves through two novels now, uh, and it finally happens, and he has exactly the same release day experience that I had uh, and that so many people had. I know that uh, many of my readers are also authors, and I think they'll get a kick out of uh, experiencing that anew with Parker. But as I look forward to the release of Playing Saint, All Souls Day, I want to invite you to come to an event to help make my release day a little less sad. And honestly, I have found that indie release days, because the expectations are lower and because you know exactly what to expect, because it's all on your shoulders, they're intrinsically less sad. Uh, And in this case, uh, I'm very excited that uh, I've got an event on November 2nd, which is actually All Souls Day at Baker Bookhouse. They're hosting a, a launch party, release party for the book. There's going to be some cake there, naturally. Uh, there'll be some some funny stuff. We're going to tape a live episode of the Clinch podcast, uh, some Q&A, a reading, uh, and, and you know, I like to do things that are a little out of the ordinary, as you know if you've been to any of my book events. And you should come to that. I mean, even if you have to fly in from the West Coast or something, it'll be 45 minutes to an hour, uh, so very much worth your time. Uh, And and you know, even if you're coming from around the world, the jet lag, uh, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. But if that's a little too far, Grand Rapids, Michigan, here in uh, what I lovingly call America's High Five. I got something for you anyway, and that is a Facebook event, an online launch party. And I want to clarify here that there's actually nothing sad about an online party. And if it sounds like it's a really sad thing, um, that's not the case. You're, You're just... You're just being negative. Um, and Actually, we did an online release party for The Last Con, and I heard from a number of people that it was actually more fun than the in-person event. I don't know what that says about the direction of society or anything, uh, but there'll be giveaways in that case as well, a lot of trivia, a lot of interaction, and I will dole out the soundtrack of the new book throughout the course of the hour-long event. Uh, just go ahead for, for information on either of these and pop over to www.zacharybartles.com slash allsoulsday Uh, and that's where you'll find that stuff and now I do feel a little bit guilty about leaving Adam Marsh in uh, such great peril and his son Trenton uh, not really knowing what's going on with his dad but I don't feel that bad about it because they're like, you know, not real so this week instead of doing another chapter from Clinch I'm going to read to you from Playing Saint I'm going to read the prologue, which is a flashback to 13 years before the story starts, and then I'm going to read uh, the next. Flashback as well And if you haven't read Playing Saint uh, The way it's set up Is there's these flashbacks uh, Into the the Kind of the mind Of the killer And they get closer And closer and closer To the main story uh, The present day story And then the two Intersect uh, At the climax Of the story Which I thought Was kind of a clever And fun way to do it Uh, So I'm going to read uh, Just a little section here From Playing Saint I hope you enjoy it Danny sat quietly In the pew and waited for his exorcism. It wasn't scheduled, but it would happen. He would make it happen. He'd been down this road countless times before, enough to know that all the elements of the equation were present here this morning. He would be delivered, at least that's what they'd call it. He'd probably fall to the ground and writhe around for a few seconds. He'd own the moment, milk it a little. The prospect failed to thrill him. It had become banal, like waiting to be called into the dentist's office, flipping through ancient dog-eared magazines, or sitting in the DMV, fiddling with that little numbered tab of paper, willing your turn to come. And yet, a certain dampened twinge of excitement persisted, not butterflies in the stomach, more like a tingle of expectation somewhere deeper. Which was fine. Stuffed full as it was with meat and grease, his stomach would not accommodate butterflies. Butterflies. Danny was a trim young man and usually ate little, but on these special Sunday mornings he always felt inexplicably compelled to stop at some rural greasy spoon and eat until he felt a bit queasy. It was like that old maxim about a pregnant woman eating for two. How many was Danny eating for now? He'd lost count. And he had no choice but to continue feeding them, to carry on with increasing momentum down this road, all the while pretending that he didn't know the truth. At the end of the day, he would be the main course. He tuned out the announcements and invocation and passed the time leafing through a special edition King James New Testament. It was in every sense a prop, and as such, he had learned how to attract attention to it in just the right way, to showcase the words 12-step edition on the cover without being too obvious about it. He'd found the gem in a second-hand bookstore six months earlier and knew right away that it would help the project. An unspoken battle with drugs and drink worked wonders at building credibility and filling in the grim backstory. A rotund man with a pink face invited the congregation to stand and sing a chorus from a yellowed, comb-bound booklet in the pew rack. Danny stood with the rest, thoroughly despising the saloonish bounce of the untuned, upright piano, but moving his mouth with the words all the same. There was no need to draw attention to himself just yet. He was still invisible, and that was good. Churches were funny that way. A pretty young lady in a sundress or a middle-aged couple with two children would attract an ad hoc welcoming committee within moments of entering the building. But a dumpy guy in his early twenties, with unkempt hair, thick circles beneath his eyes, and worn, ill-fitting thrift store clothes would only be noticed by a very particular type of person, and yet this type could be found in most every church, and these were the people with whom Danny needed to make his initial contact. Spotting them, and in turn being spotted, was not an exact science, but it was one that he had been developing for nearly two years. The first time had just sort of happened. It was early spring, his sophomore year at Wayne State, and Danny hadn't slept for three nights The nightmares had been getting worse back then, and he had found that chemically keeping himself awake was the best defense. One Sunday morning at about 6.30, his classwork complete and his few friends unconscious in their bunks, Danny had gone for a drive. He cracked the windows, cranked the music, and followed a state highway north. Before he knew it, he was out of Metro Detroit and up into what Michiganders called the Thumb, flanked by fields of corn and soybeans. A little before nine, his fuel gauge told him it was time to refill, and his better judgment added that it was time to head back. He began looking for a gas station. Two popped up in the course of ten miles, but the first was closed Sundays, and the other didn't open until noon. Another three little towns came and went without any hint of where their residents procured fuel. The car began to intermittently shake and chug, the final warning that the bottom of the tank was near. Danny remembered having seen a payphone outside a convenience store a few towns back. He could possibly make it. Then again, what if there was a gas station just over this hill? It'd be stupid to turn around and miss it. He cursed his luck and his life and decided to push ahead until the old car stalled out, which happened just as he crested the hill. And he was sure that no one had ever been as glad as he was in that moment to see Don's beer, bait, and gas, shining like a jewel in the valley, a red neon open sign glaring in the window. The car coasted easily down to the entrance, where Danny glided it into the parking lot and up to a pump. Obeying at least a dozen hand-lettered signs distributed around the grounds, demanded that he pay first, Danny headed into the charmless little store. $15 on pump one he told the clerk, presumably Don, who held out his hand dispassionately without so much as glancing up from a two-page glossy spread full of guns. Danny put his hand into his back pocket in search of his wallet. Nothing. The other pants pockets were empty, too, as were his coat pockets. With a burst of clarity, he remembered tucking the tattered brown billfold into the front pocket of his backpack the night before. It was in his dorm room. Oh no, this isn't happening. He surveyed Don's, or whoever's, face for any trace of compassion, but came up empty. Um, I can't believe this, but I left my wallet back in my room. In Detroit. You don't say. I I know how it sounds, but I'm completely empty out there at the pump. I'm sure it won't even start. I'll mail you the money, plus interest. No credit, no checks, no loans. This is a gas station and a bait shop, not a charity. I'm not asking for charity. I would leave you my watch. For collateral, it's not much, but save it. You want charity? The Jesus freaks across the street are about to start their meeting anytime now. I'm sure someone over there will give you a handout. The Prince of Peace Gospel Church was a two-minute walk from Don's no longer jewel-like establishment. Danny had entered five minutes into the service, slipping into a seat near the back. He'd never been a churchgoer. A religious friend in high school had goaded him endlessly, but Danny had never seen the point. The service was more or less what he expected. Uninspired music and unremarkable pep talk about living a, quote, victorious life. He endured it without participating, waiting for it to be over so he could undertake the uncomfortable chore of asking for money. Before the minister gave the benediction, he invited anyone who, quote, had a need to come to the front for prayer, counsel, and support from the church leaders. This seemed the best chance Danny would get. As the congregation filed down the center aisle, he made his way up the side. Judging by the brightening of the pastor's face, Danny deemed it rare for someone to take him up on the offer of a post-service meeting. He gave Danny's hand two vigorous pumps while bellowing, Jim, Eddie, need you up here, to a pair of men busily herding women and children out the back. They, in turn, tapped a few others, and before he knew it, Danny was surrounded by a group of seven concerned church members. You need prayer. I can see it in your eyes, said a white-haired woman. There was a general murmur of agreement that persisted until the pastor held up a hand for silence. Eddie, an enormous man in a worn button-up shirt, gripped Danny's arm a little too hard and looked him in the eyes. Tell me, son, are you having a problem with drugs? Yes, he answered, although he wasn't sure why. Danny hated anything stronger than caffeine and B12, but it was clearly the answer they wanted. Noticing the exchange of concerned glances, he added, but I'm six weeks sober last Thursday. Their smiles returned. The pastor patted Eddie on the back as if he deserved the credit for this development. I'm not feeling too good, though. I haven't slept in days. Danny was surprised how the truth felt no different from the absurdity of his lie, even to him. I've run out of money, and I'm afraid I'll fall back in with the old crowd. Can we pray for you? the pastor asked. Yes, I'd really appreciate that, Danny lied. In unison, seven hands pressed into him, spread out all over his head, shoulders, and back. He took the hint from their firm downward pressure and fell to his knees. The pastor's voice dropped to a raspy half-whisper. Lord, we pray for this young man, that you bind the spirits of addiction that are terrorizing him. Give him the strength to push forward. Give him sleep. Give him rest in you. And Lord, if there are any demons oppressing him, we break their hold over him in the name of Jesus." He punctuated the last word with a squeeze to the back of Danny's neck, pinching a bundle of nerves. Danny flinched and sucked in a breath. The group collectively gasped, and for a moment all seven hands were lifted from his body. When they returned, they were placed gingerly with an added sense of reverence. Emboldened by this little victory, the pastor's voice doubled in volume and intensity. "'Father, we pray that all evil spirits leave this man for good, never to return.' Playing to his audience, Danny let out a little yelp, followed by a shudder. There were a variety of amens from the huddle around him, and then the prayer was over. When he opened his eyes, he was met with a wall of awe. They all gaped at him, like he'd just broken a home run record or dragged a child from a burning building. Then the awe matured into the pride of builders, surveying their work. He was their project, and they were all pleased with the outcome. Two hundred and thirty-seven dollars was quickly amassed. It was all they had on them, and they insisted he take it. They would be thinking of him, they vowed, remembering him at their weekly prayer meetings. Everything would be better from here on out. Only, it wasn't. For a few days, the dread he'd been carrying around seemed to lighten. The nightmares even went away for a couple of nights, but when they came back, they were all the more terrifying. The next Sunday morning, he found himself strangely drawn to a little Pentecostal church in Lapeer, where he began to hone his performance as the man who needed prayer and deliverance. Within three months, he felt like he could write a book on the subject. Refusing to take money was the first breakthrough. He slowly learned that peppering his speech with Latin phrases and a low, growling laugh interspersed with weeping and a pretended sense of confusion helped as well, as long as he didn't overdo it. Less was more, he learned. And of course, the churches had to be far enough apart from one another to avoid any kind of overlap. For the better part of a year, Danny did not understand his compulsion to return to these little churches, seeking out an informal ritual from ordinary folks, most of whom had never taken part in it before, a ritual he himself did not believe in. Then came the quiet voices, and the unmistakable presence, like the nightmares spreading into his waking hours. At first, he thought of it as a battle, him against them, as if he was dealing them a blow on Sunday mornings. Eventually, though, he realized that they actually wanted him to go to the churches. They wanted him to be delivered each week. They had been the ones compelling him all along, coaching him as he worked on his craft. They had also compelled him to kill two people. The most recent was just last night. Danny shifted in the pew a little impatiently, bending the 12-step New Testament nearly in half one way and then the other. The song leader gave the universal sign for, you may be seated, and whispered, thank you, Jesus. A blonde woman in her 50s took to the pulpit and asked the group, before the pastoral prayer this morning, do we have any special prayer requests? Danny raised his hand as timidly as he could. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colin. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit zacharybartles.com you'd like to drop me a note you can reach me by email at zach at zachary Bartles.com. that's zach with an h like god intended or through the u.s mail at p.o box 1003 lansing michigan 48901 naturally i'm also on facebook and twitter at author z bartles and if you're a little twisted you might want to check out the gut check podcast www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast thanks for listening